CD9 A world of silence. No sound up here except the rush of wind through the feathers. Up here the world is round, bordered by a band of sea. The viewpoint is from horizon to horizon. The sun is closer, and yet looking down, looking for shapes, down in the farmland on the edge of the wilderness, on a small hill, a tiny moving dome, ridiculously exposed. No sound but the rush of wind through the feathers as the eagle pulls in its wings and drops like an arrow, the world spinning around the little moving shape that is the focus of all the eagle's attention. Closer, and talons down, grip, and rise. Brother opened his eyes. His back was merely agonizing. He'd long ago got used to switching off pain. But he was spread-eagled on a surface, his arms and legs chained to something he couldn't see. Sky above, the towering frontage of the temple to one side. By turning his head a little, he could see the silent crowd and the brown metal of the iron turtle. He could smell smoke. Someone was just tightening the shackles on his hand. Brother looked over at the Inquisitor. Now, what was it he had to say? Oh, yes. The turtle moves, he mumbled. The man sighed. Not this one, friend, he said. The world spun under Om as the eagle sought for shell-cracking height, and his mind was besieged by the tortoise's existential dread of being off the ground. And Brother's thoughts bright and clear, this close to death. I'm on my back, and I'm getting hotter, and I'm going to die. Careful, careful, concentrate, concentrate. It'll let go any second. Om stuck out his long, scrawny neck, stared at the body just above him, picked what he hoped was about the right spot, plunged his beak through the brown feathers between the talons, and gripped. The eagle blinked. No tortoise had ever done that to an eagle anywhere else in history. Om's thoughts arrived in the little silvery world of its mind. We don't want to hurt one another now, do we? The eagle blinked again. Eagles have never evolved much imagination or forethought, beyond that necessary to know that a turtle smashes when you drop it on the rocks. But it was forming a mental picture of what happened when you let go of a heavy tortoise that was still intimately gripping an essential bit of you. Its eyes watered. Another thought crept into its mind. Now, you play <clears throat> ball with me, I'll play ball with you. Understand? This is important. This is what I want you to do. The eagle soared on a thermal off the hot rocks and sped towards the distant gleam of the citadel. No tortoise had ever done this before. No tortoise in the whole universe. But no tortoise had ever been a god and knew the unwritten motto of the Quisition, Cuius testiculus harbis, habeas cardia et cerebellum. When you have their full attention in your grip, their hearts and minds will follow. Urn pushed his way through the crowds, with Fergman trailing behind. That was the best and the worst of civil war, at least at the start. Everyone wore the same uniform. It was much easier when you picked enemies who were a different colour, or at least spoke with a funny accent. You could call them gooks or something. It made things easier. Hey, Ern thought, this is nearly philosophy. Pity, I probably won't live to tell anyone. The big doors were ajar, the crowd was silent and very attentive. He craned forward to see and then looked up at the soldier beside him. It was simony. I thought... It didn't work, said simony bitterly. Did you? We did everything. Something broke. It must be the steel they make here, said Ern. The link pins on... That doesn't matter now, said Simony. The flat tones of his voice made Ern follow the eyes of the crowd. There was another iron turtle there, a proper model of a turtle, mounted on a sort of open gridwork of metal bars in which a couple of inquisitors were even now lighting a fire, and chained to the back of the turtle. Who's that? Brother. What? I don't know what happened. He hit Vorbis. Or didn't hit him, or something. Enraged him anyway. Vorbis stopped the ceremony right there and then. Urn glanced at the deacon. Not Cenobiarch yet, so uncrowned. Among the EMs and bishops, standing uncertainly in the open doorway, his bald head gleamed in the morning light. 
Come on, then, said Ern. Come on what? We can rush the steps and save him. There's more of them than there are of us, said Simony. Well, haven't there always been? There's not magically more of them than there are of us just because they've got brother, are there? Simony grabbed his arm. Think logically, will you? he said. You're a philosopher, aren't you? Look at the crowd. Ern looked at the crowd. Well? They don't like it, Simony turned. Look, brother's going to die anyway, but this way it'll mean something. People don't understand, really understand, about the shape of the universe and all that stuff. But they'll remember what Vorbis did to a man, right? We can make brother's death a symbol for people, don't you see? Ern stared at the distant figure of brother. It was naked except for a loincloth. A symbol, he said. His throat was dry. It has to be. He remembered Didactylos saying the world was a funny place, and he thought distantly it really was. Here, people were about to roast someone to death, but they'd left his loincloth on out of respectability. You had to laugh, otherwise you'd go mad. You know, he said, turning to Simony, now I know Vorbis is evil. He burned my city. Well, the Tsortians do it sometimes, and we burn theirs. It's just war. It's all part of history. And he lies and cheats and claws power for himself, and lots of people do that too. But you know what's special? Do you know what it is? Of course, said Simony. It's what he's doing to... It's what he's done to you. What? He turns other people into copies of himself. Simony's grip was like a vice. You're saying I'm like him? Once you said you'd cut him down, said Ern. Now you're thinking like him. So we rushed them then, said Simony. I'm sure of maybe four hundred on our side, so I give the signal and a few hundred of us attack thousands of them, and he dies anyway and we die too. What difference does that make? Ern's face was grey with horror now. You mean you don't know, he said. Some of the crowd looked round curiously at him. You don't know, he said. The sky was blue. The sun wasn't high enough yet to turn it into Omnia's normal copper bowl. Brother turned his head again towards the sun. It was about a width above the horizon, although if Didactylos's theories about the speed of light were correct, it was really setting thousands of years in the future. It was eclipsed by the head of Vorbis. Hot yet, brother, said the deacon. Warm. It will get warmer. There was a disturbance in the crowd. Someone was shouting. Vorbis ignored it. Nothing you want to say, he said. Can't you manage even a curse? Not even a curse? You never heard Om said brother. You never believed. You never, ever heard his voice. All you heard were the echoes inside your own mind. Really? But I am the Cenobiarch, and you are going to burn for treachery and heresy, said Vorbis. So much for Om, perhaps. There will be justice, said brother. If there is no justice, there is nothing. He was aware of a small voice in his head, too faint yet to distinguish words. "'Justice,' said Vorbis. The idea seemed to enrage him. He spun around to the crowd of bishops. "'Did you hear him? There will be justice! Om has judged through me! This is justice!' There was a speck in the sun now, speeding towards the citadel, and the little voice was saying, "'Left, left, left, up, 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 left, left, right a bit, right a bit, up, left, left!' The mass of metal under him was getting uncomfortably hot. "'He comes now,' said Brother. Vorbis waved his hand to the great façade of the temple. "'Men built this. We built this,' he said. "'And what did Om do? Om comes. Let him come. Let him judge between us.' "'He comes now,' Brother repeated. "'The God.' People looked apprehensively upwards. There was that moment, just one moment, when the world holds its breath and against all experience waits for a miracle. Up, left, now, now, when I say three. One, two, three. Vorbis, croaked brother. What? snapped the deacon. You're going to die, 
It was hardly a whisper, but it bounced off the bronze doors and carried across the place. It made people uneasy, although they couldn't quite say why. The eagle sped across the square, so low that people ducked. Then it cleared the roof of the temple and curved away towards the mountains. The watchers relaxed. It was only an eagle. For a moment there, just for a moment. No one saw the tiny speck tumbling down from the sky. Don't put your faith in gods, but you can believe in turtles. A feeling of rushing wind in Brother's mind, and a voice, Oh, oh, bugger, oh, oh, ow! Even Vorbis got a grip of himself. There had been just a moment when he'd seen the eagle, but no. He extended his arms and smiled beatifically at the sky. I'm sorry, said Brother. One or two people who had been watching Vorbis closely said later that there was just time for his expression to change before two pounds of tortoise, travelling at three metres a second, hit him between the eyes. It was a revelation. And that does something to people watching. For a start, they believe with all their heart. Brother was aware of feet running up the steps and hands pulling at the chains, and then a voice. One. He is mine. The great god rose over the temple, billowing and changing, as the belief of thousands of people flowed into him. There were shapes there, of eagle-headed men and bulls and golden horns, but they tangled and flamed and fused into one another. Four bolts of fire whirred out of the cloud and burst the chains holding brother. Two, he is Sanobiarch and prophet of prophets. The voice of Theophany rumbled off the distant mountains. Three, do I hear any objections? No, good. The cloud had by now condensed into a shimmering golden figure, as tall as the temple. It leaned down until its face was a few feet away from Brother, and in a whisper that boomed across the place, said, Four, don't worry. This is just the start. You and me, kid. People are going to find out what wailing and gnashing of teeth really is. Another shaft of flame shot out and struck the temple doors. They slammed shut, and then the white-hot bronze melted, erasing the commandments of the centuries. Five. What shall it be, prophet? Brother stood up unsteadily. Ern supported him by one arm and Simony by the other. Hmm? he said, muzzily. Six. Your commandments. I thought they were supposed to come from you, said Brother. I don't know if I can think of any. The world waited. How about think for yourself? said Ern, staring in horrified fascination at the manifestation. No, said Simony. Try something like, social cohesiveness is the key to progress. Can't say it rolls off the tongue, said Ern. If I can be of any help, said cut me own hand off to blah from the crowd, something of benefit to the convenience food industry would be very welcome. Not killing people. We could do with one like that, said someone else. It'll be a good start, said Ern. They looked at the Chosen One. He shook himself free of their grip and stood alone, swaying a little. No, said Brother. No, I thought like that once, but it wouldn't. Not really. Now, he said, only now, just one point in history, not tomorrow, not next month. It'll always be too late unless it's now. They stared at him. Come on, said Simony. What's wrong with it? You can't argue with it. It's hard to explain, said Brother, but I think it's got something to do with how people should behave. I think you should do things because they're right, not because God say so. They might say something different another time. Seven. I like one about not killing, said Om from far above. Eight. It's got a good ring to it. Hurry up. I've got some smiting to do. You see, said Brother, no, no smiting, no commandments, unless you obey them too. Om thumped on the roof of the temple. 
nine. You order me here now? Me? No, I ask. Ten. That's worse than ordering. Everything works both ways. Om thumped his temple again. A wall caved in. That part of the crowd that hadn't managed to stampede from the place redoubled its efforts. Eleven. There must be punishment. Otherwise there will be no order. No. Twelve. I do not need you. I have believers enough now. But only through me, and perhaps not for long. It will all happen again. It's happened before. It happens all the time. That's why gods die. They never believe in people. But you have a chance. All you need to do is believe. Thirteen. What? Listen to stupid prayers? Watch over small children? Make it rain? Sometimes. Not always. It could be a bargain. Fourteen. Bargain? I don't bargain. Not with humans. Bargain now, said Brother, while you have the chance. Or one day you'll have to bargain with Simony or somebody like him. Or Ern. Or someone like him. Fifteen. I could destroy you utterly. Yes, I am entirely in your power. Sixteen. I could crush you like an egg. Yes. Om paused. Then he said, Seventeen. And you can't use weakness as a weapon. It's the only one I've got. Eighteen. Why should I yield then? Not yield, bargain. Deal with me in weakness, or one day you'll have to bargain with someone in a position of strength. The world changes. Nineteen. Ha! You want a constitutional religion? Why not? The other sort didn't work. Om leaned on the temple, his temper subsiding. Chapter 2, verse 1. Very well, then, but only for a time. A grin spread across the enormous, smoking face. For one hundred years, yes? And after a hundred years? Two. We shall see. Agreed. A finger the length of a tree unfolded, descended, touched brother. Three. You have a persuasive way. You will need it. A fleet approaches. Ephebians, said Simony. Four, and Sortians, and Jellybabians, and Clatchians, every free country along the coast to stamp out Omnia for good or bad. You don't have many friends, do you? said Ern. Even I don't like us much, and I am us, said Simony. He looked up at the god. Will you help? Five, you don't even believe in me. Yes, but... I'm a practical man. Six, and brave too, to declare atheism before your god. This doesn't change anything, you know, said Simony. Don't think you can get round me by existing. No help, said Brother firmly. What? said Simony. We'll need a mighty army against that lot. Yes, and we haven't got one, so we'll do it another way. You're crazy. Brother's calmness was like a desert. This may be the case. We have to fight. Not yet. Simony clenched his fists in anger. Look, listen, we died for lies. For centuries we died for lies. He waved a hand towards the god. Now we've got a truth to die for. No, men should die for lies, but the truth is too precious to die for. Simony's mouth opened and shut soundlessly as he sought for words. Finally, he found some from the dawn of his education. "'I was told it was the finest thing to die for a god,' he mumbled. "'Vorbis said that, and he was stupid. "'You can die for your country or your people or your family, "'but for a god you should live fully and busily every day of a long life. "'And how long is that going to be?' "'We shall see.' "'Brother looked up at Om. "'You will not show yourself like this again?' "'Chapter 3, verse 1. "'Nah, once is enough.' 
Remember the desert? Two. I will remember. Walk with me. Brother went over to the body of Vorbis and picked it up. I think, he said, that they will land on the beach on the Ephebian side of the forts. They won't use the rock shore and they can't use the cliffs. I'll meet them there. He glanced down at Vorbis. Someone should. You can't mean you want to go by yourself. Ten thousand wouldn't be sufficient. One might be enough. He walked down the steps. Ern and Simony watched him go. He's going to die, said Simony. He won't even be a patch of grease on the sand. He turned to Om. Can you stop him? Three. It may be that I cannot. Brother was already halfway across the place. Well, we're not deserting him, said Simony. Four. Good. Om watched them go, too. And then he was alone, except for the thousands watching him, crammed around the edges of the great square. He wished he knew what to say to them. That's why he needed people like Brother. That's why all gods needed people like Brother. Excuse me, the god looked down. Five. Yes? Um, I can't uh, sell you anything, can I? Six. What is your name? Dublar, god. Seven. Ah, yes. And what is it you wish? The merchant hopped anxiously from one foot to the other. You couldn't manage just a small commandment, something about eating yoghurt on Wednesday, say. <laughs> it's always very difficult to shift midweek. Eight. You stand before your god and look for business opportunities? Well, said Dublar, we could come to an arrangement, strike while the iron is hot, as the inquisitors say. Twenty <laughs> percent, how about it? After expenses, of course. The great god Om smiled. Nine. I think you will make a little profit, Dublar, he said. <laughs> right, right, that's all I'm looking for. Just trying to make both ends hummus. Ten. Tortoises. Ten. Tortoises are to be left alone. Dublar put his head on one side. Doesn't sing, does it, he said. But, uh, tortoise necklaces, mm, brooches, of course, tortoise shell. Eleven. No. Sorry, sorry, see what you mean. All right, tortoise statues. Yes, yes, I thought about them. Nice shape. Incidentally, you couldn't make a statue wobble every now and then, could you? Very good for business wobbling statues. The statue of ossery wobbles every fast of ossery, regular. By means of a small piston device operated in the basement, that he said. But very good for the profits all the same. Twelve. You make me laugh, little prophet. Sell your tortoises by all means. Tell you the truth, said Dublar. I've already drawn a few designs, just now. Om vanished. There was a brief thunderclap. Dublar looked reflectively at his sketches. But I suppose I shall have to take the little figure off them, he said, more or less to himself. The shade of Vorbis looked around. Ah, the desert, he said. The black sand was absolutely still under the starlit sky. It looked cold. He hadn't planned on dying yet. In fact, he couldn't quite remember how he died. The desert, he repeated, and this time there was a hint of uncertainty. He'd never been uncertain about anything in his life. The feeling was unfamiliar and terrifying. Did ordinary people feel like this? He got a grip on himself. Death was impressed. Very few people managed this, managed to hold on to the shape of their old thinking after death. Death took no pleasure in his job. It was an emotion he found hard to grasp, but there was such a thing as satisfaction. So, said Vorbis, the desert. And at the end of the desert? Judgment. Yes, 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 of course. Vorbis tried to concentrate. He couldn't. He could feel certainty draining away, and he'd always been certain. He hesitated, like a man opening a door to a familiar room and finding nothing there but a bottomless pit. The memories were still there. He could feel them. They had the right shape. It was just that he couldn't remember what they were. There had been a voice. Surely there had been a voice. But all he could remember was the sound of his own thoughts. 
bouncing off the inside of his own head. Now he had to cross the desert. What could there be to fear? The desert was what you believed. Vorbis looked inside himself and went on looking. He sagged to his knees. I can see that you are busy, said Death. Don't leave me. It's so empty. Death looked around at the endless desert. He snapped his fingers and a large white horse trotted up. I see a hundred thousand people, he said, swinging himself into the saddle. Where? Where? Here, with you. I can't see them. Death gathered up the reins. Nevertheless, he said, his horse trotted forward a few steps. I don't understand, screamed Vorbis. Death paused. You have perhaps heard the phrase, he said, that hell is other people. Yes, 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 of course. Death nodded. In time, he said, you will learn that it is wrong. The first boats grounded in the shallows and the troops leapt into shoulder-high surf. No one was quite sure who was leading the fleet. Most of the countries along the coast hated one another, not in any personal sense, but simply on a kind of historical basis. On the other hand, how much leadership was necessary? Everyone knew where Omnia was. None of the countries in the fleet hated the others worse than they did Omnia. Now it was necessary for it not to exist. General Argavisti of Ephebe considered that he was in charge, because although he didn't have the most ships, he was avenging the attack on Ephebe. But Imperiator Borvorius of Tussort knew that he was in charge, because there were more Tussortian ships than any others. And Admiral Ram Ap Ethan of Jelibebi knew that he was in charge, because he was the kind of person who always thought he was in charge of anything. The only captain who did not, in fact, think he was commanding the fleet was Fasta Benj, a fisherman from a very small nation of marsh-dwelling nomads, of whose existence all the other countries were in complete ignorance, and whose small reed boat had been in the path of the fleet and had got swept along. Since his tribe believed that there were only fifty-one people in the world, worshipped a giant newt, spoke a very personal language which no one else understood, and had never seen metal or fire before, he was spending a lot of time wearing a puzzled grin. Clearly they had reached the shore, not of proper mud and reeds, but of very small, gritty bits. He lugged his little reed boat up the sand and sat down with interest to see what the men in the feathery hats and shiny fish-scale vests were going to do next. General Argavisti scanned the beach. "'They must have seen us coming,' he said. "'So why would they let us establish a beachhead?' Heat haze wavered over the dunes. A dot appeared, growing and contracting in the shimmering air. More troops poured ashore. General Argavisti shaded his eyes against the sun. "'Fellas just standing there,' he said. "'Could be a spy,' said Borvorius. "'Don't see how he could be a spy in his own country,' said Argavisti. "'Anyway, if he was a spy, he'd be creeping around. That's how you can tell.' The figure had stopped at the foot of the dunes. There was something about it that drew the eye. Argavisti had faced many an opposing army, and this was normal. One patiently waiting figure was not. He found he kept turning to look at it. "'He's carrying something,' he said eventually. "'Sergeant, go and bring that man here.' A few minutes later the sergeant returned. "'Says he'll meet you in the middle of the beach, sir,' he reported. "'Didn't I tell you to bring him here?' "'He didn't want to come, sir.' "'You've got a sword, haven't you?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Prodded him a bit, but he didn't want to move, sir. "'And he's carrying a dead body, sir.' "'On a battlefield?' "'It's not bring your own, you know.' "'And, uh, sir?' "'What?' "'He says he's probably the Cenobiarch, sir. "'Wants to talk about a peace treaty.' "'Oh, ho, he does. Peace treaty. "'We know about peace treaties with Omnia. "'Go and tell... "'No, take a couple of men and bring him here.' Brother walked back between the soldiers, through the organised pandemonium of the camp. I ought to feel afraid, he thought. I was always afraid in the citadel, but not now. This is through fear and out the other side. Occasionally one of the soldiers would give him a push. It's not allowed for an enemy to walk freely into a camp, even if he wants to. He was brought before a trestle table, behind which sat half a dozen large men in various military styles, and one small, olive-skinned man who was gutting a fish and grinning hopefully at everyone. 
"'Well, now,' said Argavisti, "'Senno Bayarch of Omnia, hmm?' "'Brother dropped Vorbis's body onto the sand. "'Their gaze followed it. "'I know him,' said Borborius. "'Vorbis! Someone killed him at last, eh? "'And will you stop trying to sell me fish? "'Does anyone know who this man is?' he added, "'indicating Faster Benj. "'It was a tortoise,' said Brother. "'Was it?' Not surprised, never did trust them, always creeping around. Look, I said no fish. He's not one of mine, I know that. Is he one of yours? Argavisti waved a hand irritably. Who sent you, boy? No one. I came by myself. But you could say I come from the future. Are you a philosopher? Where is your sponge? You've come to wage war on Omnia. This would not be a good idea. "'From Omnia's point of view, yes. "'From everyone's. "'You will probably defeat us, but not all of us. "'And then what will you do? "'Leave a garrison forever? "'And eventually a new generation will retaliate. "'Why you did this won't mean anything to them. "'You'll be the oppressors. "'They'll fight. "'They might even win, and there'll be another war. "'And one day people will say, "'Why didn't they sort it all out back then, on the beach, "'before it all started, before all those people died?' Now we have that chance, aren't we lucky? Argavisti stared at him, then he nudged Borvorius. What did he say? Borvorius, who was better at thinking than the others, said, Are you talking about surrender? Yes, if that's the word. Argavisti exploded. You can't do that! Someone will have to. Please listen to me. Vorbis is dead. He's paid. Not enough. What about your soldiers? They tried to sack our city. Do your soldiers obey your orders? Certainly. And they'd cut me down here and now if you commanded it. I should say so. And I'm unarmed, said Brother. The sun beat down on an awkward pause. When I say they'd obey, Argavisti began. We were not sent here to parley, said Borvorius abruptly. Vorbis's death changes nothing fundamental. We are here to see that Omnia is no longer a threat. It is not. We will send materials and people to help rebuild the Phoebe, and gold, if you like. We will reduce the size of our army, and so on. Consider us beaten. We will even open Omnia to whatever other religions wish to build holy places here. The voice echoed in his head like the person behind you who says, Put the Red Queen on the Black King when you think you've been playing all by yourself. One. What? This will encourage local effort, said Brother. Two. Other gods here? There will be free trade along the coast. I wish to see Omnia take its place among its fellow nations. Three. I heard you mention other gods. "'Its place is at the bottom,' said Borvorius. "'No, that won't work. Four, could we please get back to the matter of other gods?' "'Will you please excuse me a moment?' said Brother, brightly. "'I need to pray.' Even Argavisti raised no objection as Brother walked off a little way up the beach. As St. Ungulant preached to any who would listen, there were plus points in being a madman. People hesitated to stop you in case it made things worse. "'Yes,' said Brother, under his breath. Five, I don't seem to recall any discussion about other gods being worshipped in Omnia. Ah, but it'll work for you, said Brother. People will soon see that those other ones are no good at all, won't they? He crossed his fingers behind his back. Six, this is religion, boy, not comparison bloody shopping. You shall not subject your gods to market forces. I'm sorry, I can see that you will be worried about... Seven, worried, me, by a bunch of primping women and muscle-bound poses in curly beards. Fine, is that settled then? Eight, they won't last five minutes. What? And now I'd better go and talk to those men one more time. His eye was caught by a movement among the dunes. Oh, no, he said, the idiots. He turned and ran desperately towards the beached fleet. No, it's not like that. Listen, listen. But they had seen the army too. It looked impressive, perhaps more impressive than it really was. 
When news gets through that a huge enemy fleet has beached with the intent of seriously looting, pillaging, and, because they are from civilised countries, whistling and making catcalls at the women and impressing them with their flash-bloody uniforms and wooing them away with their flash-bloody consumer goods, I don't know, show them a polished bronze mirror and it goes right to their heads, you'd think there was something wrong with the local lads. Then people either head for the hills or pick up some handy, swingable object, get Granny to hide the family treasures in her drawers, and prepare to make a fight of it. And in the lead, the iron cart. Steam poured out of its funnel. Urn must have got it working again. Stupid, stupid, Brother shouted to the world in general, and carried on running. The fleet was already forming battle lines, and its commander, whichever he was, was amazed to see an apparent attack by one man. Borvorius caught him as he plunged towards a line of spears. "'I see,' he said. "'Keep us talking while your soldiers got into position, hm?' "'No, I didn't want that.' Borvorius's eyes narrowed. He had not survived the many wars of his life by being a stupid man. "'No,' he said. "'Maybe you didn't, but it doesn't matter. "'Listen to me, my innocent little priest. "'Sometimes there has to be a war. "'Things go too far for words. "'There's other forces. "'Now, go back to your people. "'Maybe we'll both be alive when all this is over, "'and then we can talk. "'Fight first, talk after. "'That's how it works, boy. "'That's history. "'Now, go back.' "'Brother turned away. "'One, shall I smite them? "'No. Two, I could make them as dust. "'Just say the word.' "'No, that's worse than war. Three, but you said a god must protect his people. "'What would we be if I told you to crush honest men? Four, not stuck full of arrows? "'No.' "'The Omnians were assembling among the dunes. "'A lot of them had clustered around the iron-shielded cart. "'Brother looked at it through a mist of despair. "'Didn't I say go down there alone?' he said. Simony, who was leaning against the turtle, gave him a grim smile. "'Did it work?' he said. "'I think it didn't.' "'I knew it. Sorry you had to find out. Things have a way of wanting to happen, see? Sometimes you get people facing off, and that's it.' "'But if only people would—' "'Yeah, you could use that as a commandment.' There was a clanging noise, and a hatch opened on the side of the turtle. Urn emerged, backwards, holding a spanner. "'What is this thing?' said Brother. "'It's a machine for fighting,' said Simony. "'The turtle moves, eh?' "'For fighting Ephebians,' said Brother. Urn turned around. "'What?' he said. "'You've built this thing to fight Ephebians?' "'Well, no, no,' said Urn, looking bewildered. "'We're fighting Ephebians.' "'Everyone,' said Simony. "'But I never... I'm... I'm an effi... I never...' Brother looked at the spiked wheels and the saw-edged plates around the edge of the turtle. "'It's a device that goes by itself,' said Urn. "'We were going to use it for... I mean... Look, I, I never wanted it to... "'We need it now,' said Simony. "'Which we?' "'What comes out of the big long spout thing at the front?' said Brother. "'Steam.' said Urn, dully. It's connected to the safety valve. Oh. It comes out very hot, said Urn, sagging even more. Oh? Scalding, in fact. Brother's gaze drifted from the steam funnel to the rotating knives. Very philosophical, he said. We were going to use it against Vorbis, said Urn. And now you're not. It's going to be used against Ephebians, you know, I used to think I was stupid, and then I met philosophers. Simony broke the silence by patting Brother on the shoulder. It will all work out, he said. We won't lose. After all, he smiled encouragingly, we have God on our side. Brother turned, his fist shot out. It wasn't a scientific blow, but it was hard enough to spin Simony around. He clutched his chin. What was that for? Isn't this what you wanted? "'We get the gods we deserve,' said Brother, "'and I think we don't deserve any. "'Stupid! Stupid! "'The sanest man I've met this year lives up a pole in the desert. "'Stupid! I think I ought to join him.' "'One. Why? "'Gods and men, men and gods,' said Brother. 
Everything happens because things have happened before. Stupid. Two. But you are the chosen one. Choose someone else. Brother strode off through the ragged army. No one tried to stop him. He reached the path that led up to the cliffs and did not even turn to look at the battle lines. Aren't you going to watch the battle? I need someone to watch the battle. Didactylos was sitting on a rock, his hands folded on his stick. Oh, hello, said Brother bitterly. Welcome to Omnia. It helps if you're philosophical about it, said Didactylos. But there's no reason to fight. Yes, there is. Honour and revenge and duty and, well, things like that. Do you really think so? I thought philosophers were supposed to be logical. Didactylos shrugged. Well, the way I see it, logic is only a way of being ignorant by numbers. I thought it would all be over when Vorbis was dead. Didactylos stared into his inner world. It takes a long time for people like Vorbis to die. They leave echoes in history. I know what you mean. How's Ern's steam machine? said Didactylos. I think he's a bit upset about it, said Brother. Didactylos cackled and banged his stick on the ground. <laughs> he's learning. Everything works both ways. It should do, said Brother. Something like a golden comet sped across the sky of the Discworld. Om soared like an eagle, buoyed up by the freshness, by the strength of the belief. For as long as it lasted, anyway. Belief this hot, this desperate, never lasted long. Human minds could not sustain it, but while it did last, he was strong. The central spire of Cori Celesti rises up from the mountains at the hub, ten vertical miles of green ice and snow, topped by the turrets and domes of Dun Manifesting. There the gods of the Discworld live. At the least, any god who is anybody. And it is strange that although it takes years of effort and work and scheming for a god to get there, once there they never seem to do a lot apart from drink too much and indulge in a little mild corruption. Many systems of government follow the same broad lines. They play games. They tend to be very simple games because gods are easily bored by complicated things. It is strange that while small gods can have one aim in mind for millions of years, are in fact one aim, large gods seem to have the attention span of the common mosquito. And style, if the gods of the Discworld were people, they would think that three plastered ducks is a bit avant-garde. There was a double door at the end of the main hall. It rocked to a thunderous knocking. The gods looked up vaguely from their various preoccupations, shrugged and turned away. The doors burst inward. Om strode through the debris, looking around with the air of one who has a search to complete and not a lot of time to do it in. Right, he said. Eo, god of thunder, looked up from his throne and waved his hammer threateningly. Who are you? Om strode towards the throne, picked up Eo by his toga and gave a quick jab with his forehead. Hardly anyone really believes in thunder gods anymore. Ow! Listen, friend, I've got no time for talking to some panty-waster in a sheet. Where's the gods of Ephebe and Tassort? Eo, clutching at his nose, waved vaguely towards the centre of the hall. You didn't have to do that, he said reproachfully. Om strode across the hall. In the centre of the room was what at first looked like a round table, and then looked like a model of the Discworld, turtle, elephants and all, and then, in some undefinable way, looked like the real Discworld, seen from far off, yet brought up close to. There was something subtly wrong about the distances, a feeling of vast space curled up small. But possibly the real Discworld wasn't covered with a network of glowing lines hovering just above the surface, or perhaps miles above the surface. Om hadn't seen this before, but he knew what it was. Both a wave and a particle, both a map and the place mapped. If he focused on the tiny glittering dome on top of the tiny Cori Celesti, he would undoubtedly see himself looking down on an even smaller model, and so on, down to the point where the universe coiled up like the tail of an ammonite, a kind of creature that lived millions of years ago and never believed in any gods at all. The gods clustered around it, watching intently. Om elbowed aside a minor goddess of plenty. 
There were dice floating just above the world, and a mess of little clay figures and gaming counters. You didn't need to be even slightly omnipotent to know what was going on. He hit my nose! Om turned around. I never forget a face, friend. Just take yours away, right? While you still have some left. He turned back to the game. Excuse me, said a voice by his waist. He looked down at a very large newt. Yes? You're not supposed to do that here. No smiting. Not up here. Eat the rules. You won't fight. You get your humans fight his humans. Who are you? Patang, patang, me. You're a god. Definite. Yeah? How many worshippers have you got? Fifty-one. The newt looked at him hopefully and added, Is that lots? Can't count. It pointed at a rather crudely moulded figure on the beach in Omnia and said, But got a stake? Om looked at the figure of the little fisherman. When he dies, you'll have fifty worshippers, he said. That more or less than fifty-one? A lot less. Definite? Yes. Hmm, no one tell me that. There were several dozen gods watching the beach. Om vaguely remembered the Ephebian statues. There was the goddess with the badly carved owl, yes. Om rubbed his head. This wasn't godlike thinking. It seemed simpler when you were up here. It was all a game. You forgot that it wasn't a game down there. People died. Bits got chopped off. We're like eagles up here, he thought. Sometimes we show a tortoise how to fly, then we let go. He said to the occult world in general, There's people gonna die down there. A Tsortean god of the sun did not even bother to look round. That's what they're for, he said. In his hand he was holding a dice box that looked very much like a human skull with rubies in the eye sockets. Ah, yes, said Om. I forgot that for a moment. He looked at the skull and then turned to the little goddess of plenty. What's this, love? A cornucopia? Can I have a look? Thanks. Om emptied some of the fruit out. Then he nudged the newt god. If I was you, friend, I'd find something long and hefty, he said. Is one less than fifty-one? said Patang Patang. It's the same, said Om firmly. He eyed the back of the Tsortean god's head. But you have thousands, said the newt god. You fight for thousands. Om rubbed his forehead. I spent too long down there, he thought. I can't stop thinking at ground level. I think, he said, I think if you want thousands, you have to fight for one. He tapped the solar god on the shoulder. Hey, sunshine! When the god looked around, Om broke the cornucopia over his head. It wasn't a normal thunderclap. It stuttered like the shyness of supernovas, great ripping billows of sound that tore up the sky. Sand fountained up and whirled across the recumbent bodies lying face down on the beach. Lightning stabbed down, and sympathetic fire leapt from spear tip and sword point. Simony looked up at the booming darkness. What the hell's happening? He nudged the body next to him. It was Argavisti. They stared at one another. More thunder smashed across the sky. Waves climbed up one another to rip into the fleet. Hull drifted with awful grace into Hull, giving the baseline of the thunder a counterpoint of groaning wood. A broken spar thudded into the sand by Simon's head. We're dead if we stay here, he said. Come on. They staggered through the spray and sand, amidst groups of cowering and praying soldiers, fetching up against something hard, half covered. They crawled into the calm under the turtle. Other people had already had the same idea. Shadowy figures sat or sprawled in the darkness. Urn sat dejectedly on his toolbox. There was a hint of gutted fish. The gods are angry, said Borvorius. Bloody furious, said Argavisti. I'm not that happy myself, said Simony. Gods, eh? This is no time for impiety, said Ram Apifan. There was a shower of grapes outside. Can't think of a better one, said Simony. A piece of cornucopia shrapnel bounced off the roof of the turtle, which rocked on its spiked wheels. But why be angry with us? said Argavisti. We're doing what they want. Bovorius tried to smile. Gods, eh? he said. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. 
Someone nudged Simony and passed him a soggy cigarette. It was a Tussortian soldier. Despite himself, he took a puff. "'It's good tobacco,' he said. "'The stuff we grow tastes like a camel's droppings.' He passed it along to the next hunched figure. "'Thank you!' Borvorius produced a flask from somewhere. "'Will you go to hell if you have a drop of spirit?' he said. "'So it seems,' said Simony absently. Then he noticed the flask. "'Oh, you mean alcohol? Probably, but who cares? I won't be able to get near the fire for priests. Thanks!' "'Pass it round.' "'Thank you!' The turtle rocked to a thunderbolt. "'Ying, ying, bong!' They all looked at the pieces of raw fish and Faster Benji's hopeful expression. "'I could rake some of the coals out of the firebox from here,' said Ern after a while. Someone tapped Simony on the shoulder, creating a strange tingling sensation. "'Thank you! I have to go!' As he took it, he was aware of the rush of air, a sudden breath in the universe. He looked around in time to see a wave lift a ship out of the water and smash it against the dunes. A distant scream coloured the wind. The soldiers stared. "'There were people under there,' said Argavisti. Simon, he dropped the flask. "'Come on,' he said. And no one, as they hauled on timbers in the teeth of the gale, as Ern applied everything he knew about levers, as they used their helmets as shovels to dig under the wreckage, asked who it was they were digging for, or what kind of uniform they'd been wearing. Fog rolled in on the wind, hot and flashing with electricity, and still the sea pounded down. Simon, he hauled on a spar, and then found the weight lessen as someone grasped the other end. He looked up into Brother's eyes. "'Don't say anything,' said Brother. "'Gods are doing this to us.' "'Don't say anything. I've got to know. It's better than us doing this to us, isn't it?' There are still people who never got off the ships. No one ever said it was going to be nice. Simon, he pulled aside some planking. There was a man there, armour and leather so stained as to be unrecognisable, but alive. Listen, said Simon, as the wind whipped at him. I'm not giving in. You haven't won. I'm not doing this for any sort of god, whether they exist or not. I'm doing it for other people. And stop smiling like that. A couple of dice dropped onto the sand. They sparkled and crackled for a while and then evaporated. The sea calmed. The fog went ragged and curled into nothingness. There was still a haze in the air, but the sun was at least visible again, if only as a brighter area in the dome of the sky. Once again there was the sensation of the universe drawing breath. The gods appeared, transparent and shimmering, in and out of focus. The sun glinted off a hint of golden curls and wings and lyres. When they spoke, they spoke in unison, their voices drifting ahead or trailing behind the others, as always happens when a group of people are trying to faithfully repeat something they've been told to say. Om was in the throng, standing right behind the Tsortean god of thunder, with a faraway expression on his face. It was noticeable, if only to brother, that the thunder god's right arm disappeared behind his own back in a way that, if such a thing could be imagined, would suggest that someone was twisting it to the edge of pain. What the gods said was heard by each combatant in his own language, and according to his own understanding. It boiled down to, one, this is not a game, two, here and now you are alive, and then it was over. You'd make a good bishop, said Brother. Me, said Didactylos, I'm a philosopher. Good, it's about time we had one. And an Ephebian. Good. You can think up a better way of ruling the country. Priests shouldn't do it. They can't think about it properly, nor can soldiers. Thank you, said Simony. They were sitting in the Cenobiaches garden. Far overhead, an eagle circled, looking for anything that wasn't a tortoise. I like the idea of democracy. You have to have someone everyone distrusts, said Brother. That way everyone's happy. Think about it. Simony? Yes, I'm making you head of the Quisition. What? I want it stopped, and I want it stopped the hard way. You want me to kill all the Inquisitors, right? No, that's the easy way. I want as few deaths as possible. Those who enjoyed it, perhaps, but only those. Now, where's Ern? The moving turtle was still on the beach, wheels buried in the sand, blown about by the storm. 
Urn had been too embarrassed to try to unearth it. "'The last I saw he was tinkering with the door mechanism,' said Didactylos. "'Never happier than when he's tinkering with things.' "'Yes, we shall have to find things to keep him occupied. "'Irrigation, architecture, that sort of thing.' "'And what are you going to do?' said Simony. "'I've got to copy out the library,' said Brother. "'But you can't read and write,' said Didactylos. "'No, but I can see and draw. Two copies, one to keep here. "'Plenty of room when we burn the Septatuke,' said Simony. "'No burning of anything.' "'You have to take a step at a time,' said Brother. "'He looked out at the shimmering line of the desert. "'Funny, he'd been as happy as he'd ever been in the desert. "'And then,' he began, "'yes?' "'Brother lowered his eyes to the farmlands and villages around the citadel. "'He sighed. "'And then we'd better get on with things,' he said. "'Every day.' "'Faster Benj rode home in a thoughtful frame of mind.' It had been a very good few days. He'd met a lot of new people and sold quite a lot of fish. Patang Patang, with his lesser servants, had talked personally to him, making him promise not to wage war on some place he'd never heard of. He'd agreed. Faster Benji's people had no word for war, since they had no one to fight and life was quite tough enough as it was. Patang Patang's words had arrived as, Remember when Pacha Modj hit his uncle with the big rock? Like that, only more worse. Some of the new people had shown him this amazing way of making lightning. You hit this rock with this piece of hard stuff, and you got little bits of lightning which dropped onto dry stuff, which got red and hot like the sun. If you put more wood on it, it got bigger, and if you put a fish on, it got black. But if you were quick, it didn't get black, but got brown and tasted better than anything he'd ever tasted, although this was not difficult and he'd been given some knives, not made out of rock and cloth, not made out of reeds, and all in all, life was looking up for Faster Benj and his people. He wasn't sure why lots of people would want to hit Pacha Modge's uncle with a big rock, but it definitely escalated the pace of technological progress. No one, not even Brother, noticed that old Lutze wasn't around any more. Not being noticed, either as being present or absent, is part of a history monk's stock in trade. In fact, he'd packed his broom and his bonsai mountains, and had gone by secret tunnels and devious means to the hidden valley in the central peaks, where the abbot was waiting for him. The abbot was playing chess in the long gallery that overlooked the valleys. Fountains bubbled in the gardens, and swallows flew in and out of the windows. "'All went well,' said the abbot, without looking up. "'Very well, lord,' said Lutze. "'I had to notch things a little, though.' "'I wish you wouldn't do that sort of thing,' said the abbot, fingering a pawn. "'You'll overstep the mark one day.' "'It's the history we've got these days,' said Lutze. "'Very shoddy stuff, Lord. I have to patch it up all the time.' "'Yes, yes. We used to get much better history in the old days.' "'Things were always better than they are now. It's in the nature of things.' "'Yes, Lord.' "'Lord,' the abbot looked up in mild exasperation, uh, "'you know the books say that Brother died "'and there was a century of terrible warfare?' "'You know my eyesight isn't what it was, Lutze.' "'Well, it's not entirely like that now.' "'Just so long as it all turns out all right in the end,' said the abbot. "'Yes, Lord,' said the history monk. "'There are a few weeks before your next assignment. "'Why don't you have a little rest?' "'Thank you, Lord. I thought I might go down to the forest and watch a few falling trees. "'Good practice, good practice. Mind always on the job, eh?' As Lutze left, the abbot glanced up at his opponent. "'Good man, that,' he said. "'Your move.' The opponent looked long and hard at the board. The abbot waited to see what long-term devious strategies were being evolved. Then his opponent tapped a piece with a bony finger. "'Remind me again,' he said, "'how the little horse-shaped ones move.' "'Eventually, Brother died, in unusual circumstances. "'He had reached a great age, "'but this at least was not unusual in the church. "'As he said, you had to keep busy every day. "'He rose at dawn and wandered over to the window. "'He liked to watch the sunrise. "'They hadn't got around to replacing the temple doors.' Apart from anything else, even Urn hadn't been able to think of a way of removing the weirdly contorted heap of molten metal. 
so they'd just built steps over them. And after a year or two, people had quite accepted it, and said it was probably a symbol. Not of anything exactly, but still a symbol. Definitely symbolic. But the sun did shine off the copper dome of the library. Brother made a mental note to inquire about the progress of the new wing. There were too many complaints about overcrowding these days. People came from everywhere to visit the library. It was the biggest non-magical library in the world. Half the philosophers of Ephebe seemed to live there now, and Omnia was even producing one or two of its own. And even priests were coming to spend some time in it because of the collection of religious books. There were 1,283 religious books in there now, each one, according to itself, the only book any man need ever read. It was sort of nice to see them all together. As Didactylos used to say, you had to laugh. It was while Brother was eating his breakfast that the subdeacon, whose job it was to read him his appointments for the day and tactfully make sure he wasn't wearing his underpants on the outside, shyly offered him congratulations. Hm? said Brother, his gruel dripping off the spoon. One hundred years, said the subdeacon, since you walked in the desert, sir. Really? I thought it was uh, fifty years. Can't be more than sixty years, boy. Er, uh, one hundred years, Lord. We had a look in the records. Really? One hundred years? One hundred years' time. Brother laid down his spoon very carefully and stared at the plain white wall opposite him. The subdeacon found himself turning to see what it was the Cenobiarch was looking at, but there was nothing, only the whiteness of the wall. One hundred years, mused Brother. Mm, good Lord, I forgot. He laughed. I forgot. One hundred years, eh? But here and now, we... The subdeacon turned around. Cenobiarch? He stepped closer, the blood draining from his face. Lord? He turned and ran for help. Brother's body toppled forward, almost gracefully smacking into the table. The bowl overturned, and gruel dripped onto the floor. And then Brother stood up without a second glance at his corpse. Ah! I wasn't expecting you, he said. Death stopped, leaning against the wall. How fortunate you were! But there's still such a lot to be done. Yes, there always is. Brother followed the gaunt figure through the wall, where instead of the privy that occupied the far side in normal space, there was black sand. The light was brilliant, crystalline, in a black sky filled with stars. Ah, there really is a desert. Does everyone get this? said Brother. Who knows? And what is at the end of the desert? Judgment. Brother considered this. Which end? Death grinned and stepped aside. What Brother had thought was a rock in the sand was a hunched figure sitting clutching its knees. It looked paralysed with fear. He stared. Vorbis? he said. He looked at death. But Vorbis died a hundred years ago. Yes, he had to walk it all alone, all alone with himself, if he dared. He's been here for a hundred years? Possibly not. Time is different here. It is more personal. Ah, you mean a hundred years can pass like a few seconds? A hundred years can pass like infinity. The black-on-black -black eyes stared imploringly at Brother, who reached out automatically without thinking, and then hesitated. He was a murderer, said Death, and a creator of murderers, a torturer without passion, cruel, callous, compassionless. Yes, I know, he's Vorbis said Brother. Vorbis changed people. Sometimes he changed them into dead people, but he always changed them. That was his triumph. He sighed. But I'm me, he said. Vorbis stood up uncertainly and followed Brother across the desert. Death watched them walk away.
That is the end of Small Gods, written by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.